What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everyone. And here's what's ahead of us. Today's jobs report defying all expectations to show job growth and fewer unemployed Americans. The president calling for more stimulus, including a payroll tax cut. Is that necessary? We'll have the latest. Plus, do today's numbers show that the stock market had it right all along? And what happens if interest rates keep rising? We'll explore that. And the Dow powerhouses, Boeing rallying 62% in a month, Apple hitting an all-time high. We'll see if there still buys. But we begin with today's monster rally. Dom Chu is here with the numbers. Dom. I mean, monster just doesn't even begin to describe it. A big green monster at this stage right now, because as you can see, Kelly, we're near the session highs. We were up over 1,000 at one point, but still 3.5% gains for the Dow. Big move there. The S&P 500, nearly 3% gains. And the NASDAQ Composite, believe it or not, 98.36 was the intraday high. That's just two points, not percentage points, two points away from a record high for the NASDAQ. So we'll keep that record watch on the screen for right now. Uh, just to put things in perspective, what does a V-shaped recovery look like? Well, you saw it in the stock market over the course of the past few months here because we lost about 45% of the downside for the S&P 500 to the COVID-19 lows, and we are now up about 35% from here. So we are now approaching some more rarefied areas where there could be some slowing momentum given the huge gains that we've seen. One other place to watch, Kelly, the 10-year Treasury note, the long side of things for the interest rate side. You can see here we had been locked in a tight trading range for a while, but now a breakout here. Can this keep going for both yields and stocks, Kelly? We are approaching some levels where some traders think there could be some slowing momentum. Back over to you. Yeah, we've already doubled uh, basically off the lows there. Dom, thanks very much. We'll see you again soon. The huge market rally today is fueled by the jobs report showing the economy actually added jobs last month and the unemployment rate wasn't nearly as dire as predicted. The president today is saying the rebound will keep getting stronger. We saved millions of lives. And now we're opening, and we're opening with a bang. And we've been talking about the V. This is better than a V. This is a rocket ship. This is far better than a V. Joining me now are Michelle Meyer, the head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research, and Lindsay Piexa is chief economist at Stiefel. Great to have you both here. Michelle, the rocket ship is emblematic, at least, of the SpaceX launch uh, the other day. Is it going to tell us uh, about the economy? Look, I think we need to think about where we are in the cycle when we analyze the economic data. So, yes, right now we are bouncing off the bottom. And today's jobs report was a blowout. It was much stronger than anticipated. Um, you know, the consensus was looking for a decline, and we clearly saw an increase here. But I think in general what the data is showing us right now is that there's a bounce. And in the early stage of the recovery, it's going to look quite V-shaped because we're going from an economy that was closed to lockdown to hibernating to one that is back open. But the bigger question is, and I think where there's still not necessarily an answer, is what happens after you exhaust that big initial bounce? What happens after you have that easy growth? Then you have to think about the longer recovery. And that's where you have to consider the scars that are left on the economy as a result of this unprecedented shock. Yeah. Lindsay, what is your uh, estimate now for GDP in the second quarter and in the back half of the year? 
Well, I don't think this changes actually much the longer term thesis for the economy. We knew that some jobs were going to come back. The bigger question is how many jobs are going to remain lost? We know that there's been a tremendous amount of businesses that have closed permanently. And even those that are now being able to bridge the gap of the last three months, and they're anxious to reopen, face a new environment of different rules and restrictions that's going to greatly limit their activity. And by extension, the need for additional rehires. So this is simply the first wave and really reflects primarily the, the baseline uh, bare minimum, if you will, needed in terms of reopening the economy at this reduced capacity. But it, it remains to be seen about whether or not this is, in fact, an ongoing positive theme. So we're still waiting for the brunt of the weakness to be felt in the second quarter, with GDP likely down 30 percent, maybe more. Now, we could continue to see somewhat of a mild rebound in the third quarter in a positive realm of 8 to 10 percent. But by the end of the year, it's likely we fall back into negative territory amid still restrained business activity, as well as the consumer, which is likely to remain hesitant to go back into the marketplace in any capacity relative to what we saw prior to the pandemic yeah. because of both lingering health and financial concerns. Michelle, we'd want it the other way around to see, OK, if we're down 30 percent in the second quarter, that we're up 40 you know, percent. Because, you know, you got to do more just to get back to where you totally. started, not 8 to 10 percent and then another negative quarter. Does that kind of stack up against what you guys are expecting? And, and what could be done? You know, we mentioned uh, the well, we'll talk a little bit later on about kind of different forms mm -hmm. of stimulus that we could see here. But what would you see that makes you say, you know, we could get a real kind of rocket ship GDP in Q3 or Q4? Sure. Yeah. So we're not quite as downbeat in that we don't look for a double dip. We're not looking for a W-shaped trajectory. We do think once the recovery starts, it will continue absent some sort of additional shock, a second wave in the virus, for example. Um, but I do think it touches on something very important here when you think about the trajectory of the data. The slope of the improvement now is going to look very steep. It's going to feel quite V-shaped rocket ship, perhaps. Um, but 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 as you get past that easy growth, as you you know, rehire the workers that are kind of seamless to rehire. Um, as consumers spend the pent-up um, uh, uh, demand and they realize that pent-up demand, then then what's left in the economy? And I do think that that's where, Kelly, to your point, you know, do you see a snapback in growth well in excess of what we had for the downturn? I'm not quite sure of that. You know, I think you get a bounce and then the economy struggles a little bit after that to realize all of the loss that we had during the economy. We have to look at things like business investment. We have to look at clearly confidence measures. And very importantly, which you started to allude to, we have to think about what kind of stimulus we'll see for the economy on an ongoing basis. Right. Lindsay, if anything, the fact that it's an election year might help forecast because people will say, absolutely, you know, the president will want policies that help the odds of his reelection. Um, usually those are stimulative anyway. You know, now we have people calling for that, you know, because of everything going on. So even if you take what the Democrats are calling for, it's a lot of help for state and local governments. Maybe we could see something like that. And government payrolls last month were horrendous. I think we lost half a million jobs. So it would seem like that's going to be a key area of future support. Well, I think you're right that any type of additional stimulus, be that from the federal government or Fed, could help artificially boost growth as we look out to the early stages of the recovery, as I mentioned, likely to begin in the third quarter. But I think the big concern is the longer term trajectory of the U.S. economy. I think we forget that going into 2020, we were already losing extreme momentum with growth slowing from 3% down to 2%. And that was against the backdrop of massive government spending already and record low rates. So we were already at a reduced level. 
going forward as we start to slowly reopen the economy. And again, the expectations of a reduced level of capacity, both from businesses and consumers, leaves us at an even further depleted level. So for 2021, I think a sub 2% growth rate for as far as the eye could see mm. is a realistic uh, possibility. Yeah, real quickly, Michelle, before we go, how does today's report change mm. your peak unemployment forecast if, if it does? Well, I think we learned now what the peak is, and it was what we had uh, last month of, of about 14 percent. Um, look, can the unemployment rate increase a bit on the back after this? It's possible if you get a big surge in labor force participation. But I think that we can pretty uh, soundly say that the recovery has started in the labor market. It's really just the pace by which jobs now come back um, and the unemployment rate uh, normalizes from here. But it does seem like that, you know, roughly 20 million jobs lost was the, the cumulative and the unemployment it's probably peaked at 14 percent. That would be great if it never hit 25, uh, at least for yeah. you three. Michelle and Lindsay, thank you both. Really good to speak with you today. Thank Michelle you, Meyer and Lindsay Piexa. Do today's numbers show that the stock market had it right all along, that the big rally from the lows is warranted? Joining me now are Art Hogan, the chief market strategist at National Securities, and Paul Christopher, the head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Welcome, guys. Art, I'll begin with you. Um, it's funny because it's, you know, we can adjudicate the past or we can try to figure out the future. So in either case, how much more emphasis would you be putting on the stock market's performance uh, given this rebound off the lows and the confirmation from the jobs report today? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I think the point that you bring up about the future is exactly what the market is trying to calibrate. So we've, we've gone through this process over the last, you know, call it a month, where that leadership that uh, had been driving us from the beginning of the recovery on March 23rd to about a month ago was clearly things that worked when we were a stay-at-home economy. And, and now that we've seen that rotation, it kind of makes sense to us that the market got it right. That we're seeing that transition from the stay-at-home basket to the to the things that work, the things that are more economically sensitive. And I think that's a trend we're going to continue to see in this market. I think we saw the market get in front of that. And certainly the transports this week have been a great signal of that. X yesterday's you know airline uh, blast off. But the transports have actually signaled that the, the economy is reopening and, and, and we should pay attention to that. I, I certainly think that that rotation makes a great deal of sense. And I think we'll see a whole lot more of that rotation. The problem with that is that those groups that are economically sensitive aren't a large enough part of the S&P 500 to continue to drive the kind of moves that we've seen. So we may see some leveling off here because it's harder for the industrials, the financials, the energies to really move the index as much as we saw technology and healthcare do. And in, in talking about that, Paul, I mean, at what point do you have to consider the level of interest rates when we've gone from under half a percent on the 10 year to nearly one percent now? Could one and a half percent be next? Yeah, we're, we're not too concerned about that. We do think that, that you could see interest rates between one and one and a quarter on the 10 year, uh, not too far into the future. But but rates fell just so dramatically. Uh, and you've seen such amount of bond issuance. Uh, even more in April and May than you saw in the whole first quarter, that we don't think interest rates will get to a level that will start to constrain business. Well, in some cases, Paul, they seem to be helping. I mean, this has got to be one of the big drivers behind the financials rebound, don't you think? Yes, that would help financials, certainly. And they've been the odd person out here. But, but in terms of interest rates maybe being too high for the, the, entire, the entire economy, no, we don't think so. Um, Art, as you mentioned, you think that this rotation can keep going, that those groups you know, are a little bit smaller, obviously, than the big cap tech, so maybe it loses some momentum. Um, what, are your, 
What do you kind of make of the odds of more stimulus coming? You know, the Fed's Main Street program is only just getting started. It seems like the PPP program really helped this economy kind of right, uh, kind of right in its course, so to speak. Um, how, you know, how does liquidity and how does government support play into your forecast for how the market continues to perform? Yeah, I think there's been three legs of support for this rally that started with monetary policy. And we're going to continue to see monetary policy support well into 2021. I think that that's a necessity to sort of mitigate the economic damage that obviously is following in the wake of this pandemic. Fiscal policy is probably going to be a little harder to come by, but it's, it's, it's going to arrive. There's more to do in fiscal policy. We probably see another package at the end of June or the start of July. And it's necessary. I think that the initial um, positive data that we're getting is, is just data that's less bad. When we think about the, the May data, it certainly was bad, but less bad than April. And I think that'll continue to be the case. We'll certainly need to see more and more of that as we work our way through the second half of this year. I think what's really important, the third leg of this that we don't talk about enough, is how quickly the healthcare infrastructure has really responded to this mm -hmm. pandemic. With a dozen companies working on vaccine in the clinic right now and 70 companies working on therapeutics. So that response has been amazing as well. So all those three things combined will continue to be part of the process here. And finally, Paul, since we have given a little bit more credence to the market's rebound now that some of the economic data is confirming it, what happens if the market starts to stumble again? You know, now that everybody's kind of in the consensus V camp, what happens if we see the market, you know, maybe not retest the lows, but just uh, stumble for any of various reasons? It could be because the coronavirus case count is up. It could be because we don't know why and we end up figuring it out in the future. But, um, you know, would that be a source of concern? No, not necessarily. We do think as we look ahead to the next 18 months, we expect the market to be higher by the end of 2021. But you're right. There are some uncertainties that no one, frankly, can know anything about. For example, the, the track of the COVID infection rate uh, in the next several months, especially as the autumn approaches. Uh, so there was probably going to be some opportunity here to uh, see the market pull back. We've been telling investors to hold some cash to the side, dollar cost average, get in here incrementally. Uh, and use the cash that way. So we think those will be opportunities. All right. Art Hogan, Paul Christopher, thank you both. Appreciate it today. Thank you. On a re really big day for the markets. Coming up, Apple's hitting an all-time high. It's up 29% this quarter. Boeing is also soaring. It's up 35% since April. Can you still buy these Dow powerhouses? Plus, a new category is emerging in the jobs market. It's contact tracers. We'll look at where those jobs are. And the surprise jump in payrolls impacted the housing market almost instantly. We'll have more on that. And before we go, take a look at the Dow 30 heat map. These are all 30 stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial average, which is up 927 points right now, and all but one of them are higher. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
Welcome back to The Exchange. A pair of Dow powerhouses are among the leaders in today's big rally. Boeing shares are leading the Dow again, and it's now up 124 percent since its March lows and 70 percent in a month. Also, check out shares of Apple hitting an all-time high today. They're up more than 50 percent since the March lows. For more on what's driving these big rallies, let's bring in Wedbush Managing Director of Equity Research Dan Ives to talk Apple and Cowan Senior Aerospace Analyst Kaivon Rumor to talk Boeing. Good to see you both. Dan, let's start with Apple and a stock at all-time highs. Look, I mean, it's really the services business has been what's the rock of Gibraltar here for Apple. I mean, I view that that's worth five to six hundred billion. And you start to view from a sum of the parts perspective, this is all the drum on to an iPhone 12 product cycle, 5G going to later this year, next year. And there's massive pent-up demand, 350 million of 950 million iPhones worldwide or an upgrade opportunity. That's why I think a year from now, we're looking at a $2 trillion market cap for Apple. Wow. So why was it 50% off a month ago or two months ago? I mean, it speaks. I know we, we've talked about it you know, with you and the team. It, I think the, the bark is a lot worse than the bite in terms of the services business. That was the worry. Was that going to see the type of softness in light of what we're seeing in the pandemic? And I think it comes down to iPhones, what you see in terms of, remember, in China, that's the demand and the supply side. They're caught in that crossfire. I think the worries were overdone, and now you have a drum roll into what I believe is probably the most massive product cycle from Apple in at least the last five, six years. That's why I think this is a stock that has a four in front of it. 425 is our bull case now. Wow. So 375 remains the price target. The stock's at 330 today. Um, is this Apple-specific, Dan, or are there you know all the big cap tech names? I mean, when you mentioned a $2 trillion valuation, that's often thrown around with Amazon, too. Um, ha having cleared the coronavirus hurdle, do they all just keep marching higher? I do believe. I think Fang names go up another 20, 25% this year. I think part of it, they've been safety blankets in this category fine five COVID storm. But I think part of it is that the stronger are getting stronger. And I think you're starting to now see on the other side of this dark valley, you're going to have the leverage and the growth that's going to, I think, push these stocks higher. That's why, in my opinion, we are still in the fourth, fifth inning of this tech rally playing out. Real quickly on interest rates, I've often heard people say higher rates are a threat to the FANG names because they kind of trade inversely. Um, what happens if we have rates punch through the 1% mark and keep climbing? I think that could be maybe a, what I would view as a headline risk. Uh, but I do think at least in the near term right now, it comes down to there's a lack of secular growth opportunities. That's why FANG names and you look at cloud cybersecurity. Those are stocks that I think continue to move higher. Just given right now we go into the second half and you look at Apple, that's, our, that's the 5G play going in 2021. All right, Dan, thanks very much. Dan Ives on Apple. Thank Let's you. turn now to Boeing's roaring rebound with Kaivon Rumor. He's managing director and senior aerospace research analyst at Cowan. Um, Kai, I mean, this, it obviously has been rallying in conjunction with airlines accelerating their reopening plans, uh, American especially yesterday. Um, right. But how much more do we have to hear about reopening and, and passenger travel in order for Boeing to keep climbing? I think we may have to hear a fair amount. Um, I think it's up because, A, they did a huge uh, debt offering, so the liquidity isn't an issue. And so, as you mentioned, the airlines are coming back. And I think some investors are anticipating a vaccine for COVID, which would take COVID off the table. 
but but I think the problem is that uh, you know the airlines are basically suffering. This is a long-term capital goods business. The cycles are usually four to five years on the downside, and we're certainly in a downward trajectory now. One of the big issues is um, how many maxes can they deliver next year? There's some chance of certification delay because of uh, COVID. Um, also, the airlines are sort of pushing to defer a number of their deliveries. The uh, dispute with China over flight restrictions is an issue because China is 20% of their backlog. Wow. And we've had a couple of airline bankruptcies. So they may not see enough of an uptick in uh, max deliveries next year to allow them both to reduce their inventory and to sustain uh, the supply production where it currently is. And you have Boeing rated market perform with a $150 price target. That's $60 below where we are right now. And I can't help but think if you're right in the longer run, that doesn't bode well uh, at all for the broader market. You know, it kind of suggests that the, the V-shaped rebound has happened, but now there's a leveling off, if not kind of a mean reversion. Uh, that's definitely possible, I think. Can you talk a little bit more about when you think investors might get the news flow on Boeing that would disappoint their expectations, what seems to be priced into the stock right now? Well, I think on the second quarter, in the first quarter, they talked about expecting to deliver the majority of the 450 maxes they have um, in 12 months after certification. I mean, you know, we've gone through a couple of months here, I think, with deferrals. Whether they still say that in this next quarter, we'll see. Second issue is they'll have um, negative cash flow. Uh, working capital is a big issue. It's spiking. It's spiked for RTX of, and it'll spike at Boeing for the same reason, which is that they are um, having to accept deliveries from their suppliers, pay their suppliers early to keep them afloat. And on the other hand, their customers are not wanting to take deliveries and are asking for extended uh, payment terms. The other thing, as you look out a little bit farther, um, is that next year they'll have to uh, basically pay down the deferred uh, payroll tax uh, holiday that they're getting this year. There's a proposed R&D tax credit cut. It's a big number, $2 billion for, for, for um, Lockheed Martin, and they'll face the same issue that's out in 2022, and I think they'll have to fund their pension plan. So we don't see them being able to resume a dividend until 2024. Wow. Wow. Kai, it's a good reality check. It's great to hear from you. Thanks so much for your Super. time today. Thank you. Kai Von Rumer is the analyst on Boeing at Cowan, $150 price target there. Uh, even as we're talking about the powerhouse stocks of the Dow, the Nasdaq just hit a new all-time intraday high. Again, the Nasdaq trading above the prior high, which was 9,838. We're currently at 9,840. So today's 224-point rally, 2.3% gain, has just pushed the Nasdaq into fresh all-time intraday high territory. Coming up, could the return to pre-COVID levels of employment come sooner than we think? We'll ask Ed Lazier, former chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And as we head to break, take a look at the big rally in the financials today. Citigroup, U.S. Bancorp, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America are among the leaders. They're up nearly 7% in Citi's case. They're up 12% as a group this week. We're back in two. Mm -hmm. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, a huge day in the markets. Let's run through everything. The Dow rallying more than 1,000 points today for the first time since April. The Nasdaq just hit a new all-time intraday high. So the Dow's currently up 967. We're just off the highs. That's a 3.7% gain, 3% gain for the S&P, which is now over 3,200. And the Nasdaq up 220 points. It was briefly above the 98.38 intraday high level just a few moments ago. Look behind me across the sectors. Everybody's green, but especially so with energy. That's the leadership today with a 7 and a half percent gain. Industrials up four and a half percent. The financials are up four percent as interest rates have really lifted. The 10-year Treasury yield is above 0.9 percent. On the flip side, consumer staples, which had been strong throughout uh, the COVID period, is now up only one and a half percent. And that tech-heavy communication services trade is only up two percent today. Let's take a look at the XLY, the consumer discretionary ETF, because it's also about to hit all-time highs. One percent away from that level right now with a three percent gain today. And it's led by the cruise line stocks today as kind of the reopening trade continues. Here's a look at those individual names. Norwegian up 22 percent. It's back to nearly $24 a share. Carnival's up 22 percent. It's over $22 a share. And Royal Caribbean is up 25 percent to over $71 a share. Let's get a market flash now on Grubhub. Dear Jabosa has the details. Deirdre. Hey, Kelly, take a look at shares of Grubhub. They are surging nearly 10 percent. And this is on a report from CNBC's Alex Sherman that the food delivery company has received interest from two other potential acquirers, European food delivery companies, Delivery Hero and JustEatTakeaway.com. According to people familiar to the matter to CNBC, now he reports that Uber's talks with Grubhub's that with Grubhub, they still continue and they could still strike a deal, making that the largest combined player here in the U.S. But it is notable, Kelly, that these are European uh, players. So that could take away some of those antitrust concerns that have been arising over speculation of a Grubhub Uber deal. Again, Grubhub shares are up uh, nearly 10 percent in the session. Back to you. That explains why I wasn't so familiar with them. Deirdre, thanks. That would be an interesting one. A Grub, another big mover among the many today. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Just moments ago, the city of Minneapolis agreed to ban all chokeholds by police and require any officer who sees the use of unauthorized force to intervene and report it. In Buffalo, New York, a criminal probe has now been launched into two officers seen shoving an elderly man to the ground during protests. He has been hospitalized with a head injury. During President Trump's news conference, he suggested with apparent approval that reporters had chosen to relax their social distancing by sitting closer together. A White House press official tells NBC News it was his decision because it, quote, looks better, end quote, and points out the reporters have been tested. Iran is still enriching uranium and now violating all of the restrictions in its 2018 international nuclear deal. That's according to a United Nations report seen by the AP. Since the U.S. dropped out of that pact, Iran has stepped up its nuclear efforts, trying to pressure other countries into counteracting the effects of U.S. economic sanctions. 
You are up to date, Kelly. I will send it back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much, our Sue Herrera. As the country starts to reopen for business, there's one especially important role in that process. It's the contact tracers. Kate Rogers joins us with a closer look at where those jobs are. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kelly. Well, in our new normal, experts say that contact tracing will play an increasingly important role. Tracers help to track those who may have been exposed to coronavirus and those that they've come in contact with along the way, a focused approach to slowing the disease's spread. Patterson, New Jersey is a city of 150,000 outside of New York City. It's seen the success of a contact tracing program firsthand. The city is one of the most densely populated in the country, so they doubled the staff on their tracing team to fight the outbreak. This dense population, um, obviously, um, a single case can infect uh, multiple other cases, multiple other people. Um, and spread the disease. As many as 150,000 tracers could be needed across the country as we move forward for the time being without a vaccine. Johns Hopkins has an online training course for those interested in becoming tracers that some 70,000 people have passed so far, Kelly. And one other important point, you can actually do this job from home. That's a key here for those who are looking to volunteer or get paid for their tracing work. Kelly, back over to you. And you can get up to $70,000 a year? So some of these are volunteering positions. Some of them do pay. We've seen ranges anywhere from $40,000 a year to $70,000 a year. Also, this is a position we should note that won't necessarily be around for years to come. But right now, it's definitely in demand. And contracts for this can be anywhere from two months to about a year. But definitely in demand for the time being as we start to reopen and, and move forward without a vaccine. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Kate, thanks so much. Thank Kate you. Kate Rogers. Coming up, the president says he'll be asking for a payroll tax cut and would like more stimulus. Is more money needed or do today's numbers suggest it's time for Capitol Hill to take a step back? We'll ask Senator Mark Warner. As we head to break, take a look at the semiconductor stocks. Their ETF, the SMH, hitting an all-time high today. Micron, Broadcom, NXP leading the way with gains of, in Micron's case, and NXP over 6%. Stay with us. We're going to be asking for a payroll tax cut. We'll be asking for additional stimulus money because once we get this going, it'll be far bigger and far better than we've ever seen in this country. That was the president earlier today saying he plans on asking Congress for more stimulus money. But what kind of stimulus is warranted next, especially after today's blowout jobs number? For more, I'm joined by Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, one of the Democrats excuse me, I just ate a pretzel, who recently unveiled the Paycheck Security Act, calling for federal grants to help employers cover wages and benefits of their furloughed or laid off workers. Senator, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. So let me start with what your reaction to the jobs report this morning is um, and what it tells us about whether efforts like yours are warranted. Well, Kelly, I think you know, I was pleasantly surprised, as I think the market was, and I think most policymakers were. We didn't expect this. Um, I'm not going to take one jobs report and say the crisis is over by any means. And I remind uh, all our viewers that you know we're still at three points higher unemployment than the peak of the Great Recession. And unfortunately, unemployment numbers for our minority communities, particularly African-American, Latino, even edged higher in May. So I would argue there ought to be four things that um, uh, we should be focused on. I don't think there's any political support for a payroll tax cut. You know, you got to have payrolls to have that kind of tax cut, Democrat or Republican. So let's go through the four things quickly that I would suggest. One, 
the Paycheck Security Act. It is direct government assistance to those people who have lost their jobs, reconnects you with the employer. There's a more conservative version that Josh Hawley's offered. This models itself after the European model. Um, we've had economists on the left and right say this be a better support mechanism. And by reconnecting furloughed workers with their employers during this period, you reconnect them to healthcare that has a benefit as well. And using the employee retention tax credit, you can dial it based upon the need. I would put that as number one. Real quickly, Senator, on that, but just before you move on, I just want to understand how that works, because I was going to ask you about this. So when I see $90,000, if you've laid someone off, I think that's an incentive to lay people off. Why wouldn't that be true? Or how do you say that it better aligns those incentives? Well, well, Kelly, we're talking about people that have already been laid off. So we're not gaming the system. And while we would suggest 100% up to 90,000, you know, Senator Hawley has, I think, something at 60% up to 50,000. I'm not sure that is the exact number. There would be some negotiation. I think we can also see from the German experience, the, Den- the Dutch experience, the Danish experience, where the right point is. And the fact that with this employee retention tax credit that's already in, in law, we have the ability to, to have that kind of dial. We have to presume that we've already hit the trough of the layoffs. So this is, you know, this is reconnecting those laid-off workers to their to their former hmm. uh, employers directly. And again, uh, lots of bipartisan support for this idea. I, I would point out both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal both editorialized for this approach. Whether we can move the ship of state, so that is still a fair debate. But I would put that as as a great next step. I would couple that with three other items. One, real focus in terms of dealing with particularly uh, communities of color, black and brown communities that have been disproportionately hit by the COVID virus that I think we're gonna see, you know, minority businesses, particularly third and fourth quarter, really run against the wall. In our efforts to date on getting funds into black owned banks, CDFIs, have been well-intentioned, but I don't think have hit the mark. And so I'm working on a proposal with a number of um, uh, other folks. And I think, you know, in trying to work with Secretary Mnuchin on this, who's been a good partner, on how can we target, you know, dollars into communities that are still not seeing any relief at all. Third, and this is where I think we need a, a major shift. I think there's nobody I've talked to from the business community that doesn't acknowledge that some percent of jobs, remember we still got 13% minimum unemployed, some percent of jobs are not coming back. And this may be a time to have a fresh look at our whole approach towards training and reskilling. I've had a proposal for some time that would say, you know, let's go ahead and treat tax accounting and reporting wise investment in human capital the same way we treat investment in research and development. That could be as transformative as any single policy change. And we've got to recognize that the jobs are not going to come back, have to be replaced. Okay. And we've got to reskill people. And finally, knowing we've only got a short period of time, you know, we've still seen a million job losses in state and local government. And if there's anything we should learn from the 2008 recovery, state and local government were laggards for years afterwards. And it's just been crazy that we've given small business relief for revenue loss, airlines relief for res- revenue loss, 
but we've said to state and local governments, we're not going to allow you to use any of these dollars yeah. for revenue loss. So that makes no sense at all on any economic or fairness basis. Let me just sneak one more in here. So all of what you've described, your Paycheck Security Act support for communities of color, especially uh, the jobs that are not coming back, finding them better uh, places to work, state and local government, that's all going to add up. Um, how much do you think Congress feels comfortable spending and are rising interest rates making that at all uh, less attractive? Well, again, I think the reason we've seen these numbers uh, this great jobs report is because Congress, um, and again, with support of people like Secretary Mnuchin, you know, we, we fired on all cylinders, uh, you know, $2.7 trillion of direct assistance, three to $4 trillion from the Fed. I think if there's any historical lessons we've learned that governments tend to undershoot during these remarkable crises, I think Congress, while not perfect by any means, there was a lot of, I could take you through a half dozen problems in the CARES bill, but directionally, we were right. And, you know, I still am not sure this is going to be as V-shaped or rocket-shaped as the, uh, the president has suggested. I'm very concerned. Most economists have said, you know, you're going to see some recovery and then it's going to stagnate, whether it stagnates right. at 8, 10, or 12. And I would much rather put some additional fuel in the tank. And I think those four areas I've outlined are areas where there could be broad bipartisan consensus yeah. and we could do a lot more targeting. Understood. Senator, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us from the kitchen today. Thank you, Kelly. Senator Mark Warner of Virginia outlining his plan. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, markets are surging on the back of a surprising jobs report as economies begin to reopen as of 919. Can this pace continue? The former chair of the president's Council of Economic Advisors, Ed Lazier, will weigh in on recovery prospects next. And check out the oil and gas ETF, the XOP. It has more than doubled since its March lows and is up 11 percent today. The exchange is back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. As we've mentioned, May's employment numbers were a big surprise with the U.S. adding two and a half million jobs versus expectations for a big decline. And that sent the unemployment rate down to 13.3 percent. But it's still high. Just how quickly can we get back to full employment? Rick Santelli is standing by with a special guest to discuss. Hi, Rick. Hi, and thank you, Kelly. Indeed, we'd like to welcome Ed Lazier, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under George W. Bush. Ed, let's get right into it. A record month of job creation, never had two and a half million. Last month was obviously right. a record in the other direction where we lost close to 21 million. Uh, continuing claims yesterday dropped by 3.4 million. And the work week was at an all-time record 34.7. Those are the highlights. Make sense of this report where many were just shocked when it hit the wires. Okay, well, you covered a number of uh, great points. So let me, let me try to deal with each of them pretty quickly. The first one is that what these numbers show us is that we're retracing our footsteps. That's exactly what happened during the 2007 through 2009 recession. This one's just happening a lot faster because it's a, a supply-based recession rather than a demand-based recession. So what's going on is the sectors in which we lost jobs are also the sectors in which we gained jobs. Two-thirds of the job creation this time was in leisure, hospitality, and retail. That's where we were losing the jobs. That's good news. It means there are no structural problems uh, that we're seeing in the job market. So that's probably the best news uh, in, in terms of going forward. Second, um, why did we all goof so much. I mean, we, I think most of us thought that we were going to see a pretty big negative hit this time. Uh, 
it was because we were looking at the new new unemployment claims as opposed to the continuing claims. The continuing claims this time seem to have been a much more accurate picture of what's going on. If you use those numbers, this, these numbers are pretty consistent with that. So there still could be some reporting errors, and people have been talking about that. But uh, fundamentally, this has gone in the right direction. The other point that you raised about hours, which is a really good one, is the average work week went up, and it went up in some sense too much. Now, what do I mean by too much? It went up 34.7 hours. Typically, at the peak uh, of a business cycle, we're at 34.4, 34.5 hours. So what that means is that there are fewer people right now who are working much harder. That's good news, again, because it means that will stop, and eventually we'll get some of those people recalled, and hopefully eventually as soon. Now, the other big issue, Ed, is, is that you sent me a note that foot traffic in 10 of the states currently open has reached 80 percent. And there's an underpinning of good news here that's for real. And maybe the bigger news yeah. is, is that some of the big states, like the state you're in, the state that's Kelly's in, the states on the East Coast, many of these haven't moved to the big phases yet. How is that going to add to the notion of what we are looking at for jobs next month and the month after? Great point. Uh, so what's going on is uh, about 10 states, they, they tend to be the smaller, less populous states, have reopened considerably. They're up to at least 80 uh, percent in terms of foot traffic of where they were uh, before we shut down in February. But as you point out, the big states, particularly um, in the Northeast, New York, uh, New Jersey, Massachusetts, are still at 50 percent or below where they were. So that sounds bad, but uh, you know, if you want to look at it in the positive way, it means there's a lot of room to grow. When New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, uh, Washington, when those areas start opening up, uh, and California, of course, uh, what we're going to see is pretty rapid growth. So we should be in the steep part of the growth trajectory uh, within the next couple of months. And, uh, and again, that's good news. Excellent. Ed Lazier, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for your insights. We look forward to the next jobs number to see what surprises that may hold. Kelly, thank you and back to you. That was enjoyable. Rick, thanks. And our thanks to Ed Lazier as well. Going to take a quick break here. Uh, before we do, though, we've got a news alert on Google. We want to get to Deirdre Bosa. Yes, we do. Deirdre has the details. What's going on there, Deirdre? Hey, Kelly. <laughs> Hey, Kelly, some progress into antitrust investigations into Google. CNBC Digital's Lauren Hirsch reporting that the state attorneys general investigating the company for antitrust violations, they're leaning towards pushing for a breakup of its ad technology business as part of its pending suit. This is according to people familiar with the situation. Both the states and the Department of Justice, remember, are looking to file a suit against the Internet giant. That could happen, according to sources, sometime within the next few months. Now, Google, of course, has faced antitrust penalties in Europe in the form of billions of dollars in fines. But should the AGs pursue this route, that would mark a more structural shift and, uh, Kelly, could have a bigger potential impact on the business. Still a number of steps to go before we get there. So Google shares Alphabet Shares are at up about 1.6% in the session. Back yeah, to you. Yeah, largely shrugging it off, but that's definitely going to be one to watch. Uh, Deirdre, thanks very much, Deirdre Bosa. Now we'll take a quick break. Still ahead of all CEOs from big tech firms have pledged millions of dollars to address racial inequality and have promised to improve diversity at their companies. The hiring data shows there's a lot more work to do. We're going to look at the numbers and possible solutions right after this.
Welcome back. The CEOs of major tech companies have pledged millions to address racial inequality and promise to improve. But few mega tech, uh, cap tech companies themselves have made notable gains in hiring minority candidates. For more on the state of diversity in tech and VC, I'm joined by Rodney Sampson. He's the executive chairman and CEO of Opportunity Hub, a platform which works with tech companies on racial equity. He's also a venture partner at VC firm Draper Gorin Holm. Mr. Sampson, it's good to have you. Welcome. Good to be here. What do you think uh, the, the protest this week will do to help galvanize uh, racial equality across the tech world? Um, or is the issue just so big and complex? I mean, they, certainly this would seem to add urgency. We just actually had Alexis Ohanian say he's stepping down from the board of Reddit so that uh, his seat can possibly be replaced by a black candidate. Is that are those the kinds of moves that you would like to see more of? Uh, absolutely. Um, this is an, a solvable um, opportunity. You know, in response to uh, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, tech companies and venture funds and startup communities are making these statements of solidarity. Um, Sherelle Dorsey at The Plug Insights has been capturing these public statements, and I've been doing interviews um, on phone calls with technology um, companies. And my colleagues um, are now starting to ask big tech venture funds and startup communities, what are you going to actually do at scale to create not just racial equality, uh, but equity in the ecosystem that is driving the future of work and the fourth industrial revolution um, and beyond? And as my colleague Arlen Hamilton said, it's something. Something is better than nothing, but it's not enough and it is not equity. And so if tech companies, large and small, uh, want to create racial equity, now is the time to do it. And we're ready to help them make that happen. I thought it was interesting that you said the work from home trend could help a lot on this front, perhaps by broadening where people can hire from and maybe the kinds of places that they're looking. Is that right? Um, it's absolutely correct. You know, because most of us have been sheltering in place um, and we're seeing this uh, disruptive move towards uh, work from home, learn from home, start from home, and invest from home, there's an incredible opportunity to invest billions of dollars in the reskilling of Americans remotely. Right now, we have 30 students from Brooklyn, New York, to Bowman, Texas, going through our Momentum at Morehouse with OHUB Python Bootcamp. And in 12 weeks, we'll have 30 people ready to go into the workforce, even if remotely. Uh, my call after this uh, time with you is to talk about how do we scale that to tens of thousands a year, because you can learn these skills. They don't all require a college degree. Mm -hmm. You can learn these skills and be to work in 12 to 16 weeks. What about the venture capital world and some of those kind of investment positions? How do you think that more people can get into those worlds? I mean, is, you know, is it an issue of college pedigree? Is it an issue of networking? Um, what do you think are the barriers and, and who would you say is doing a really good job of overcoming them? Absolutely. You know, you've got groups um, that I'm a part of, like Black BC. We have our 100 Black Angels and Allies Fund. Um, that are doing work in that respective area. But we really uh, must have partnership from the LP community. The limited partners must ask their general partners to hire Black and to write checks to Black venture funds, to Black founders, and what we call the family of startup ecosystem 
communities. If you want to solve it, it is actually solving. I mean, think about it like this. 75% of venture-backed companies, um, for whatever reasons, don't make it. That means they fail. So when we bet on these companies, we know that 75% of them may not make it. Imagine if we could shift 25 to 30% of that capital into black founders, hmm. funds, and the family of ecosystem building companies. Yeah. The data shows that when you have ethnic minorities, black and Latinx founders or product makers or decision makers in a firm, the economic output, according to McKinsey and company, is 35% more. Add gender into the equation, and it's 15% on that. As an investor who is looking for a return on their investment, to get a 50% potential return on your investment just makes good investment sense. Yeah. It's not charity. It's not help. It's an investment thesis that will return and return multi-generational wealth to the black community, but also to the investors that invest in those communities yeah. as well. Rodney, we have to go. I so badly want to ask you just one tiny little question. I know you're yes. big on crypto. Does that help or hurt the communities you're talking about? If you can, in like two seconds. Absolutely. I think the future is blockchain. The future is crypto. And there's an incredible opportunity to learn how to code on the blockchain, mm. but also how to invest small amounts of money. Of course, you know, at Draper uh, Gordon Home, we're giving out a million dollars in crypto for people to register to our upcoming conference in October. Got it. And so we're going to give them some some block, some Bitcoin for them to get started and to learn how these digital currencies may be a part of the fourth industrial revolution and beyond. Interesting. So much good stuff, uh, Rodney. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Rodney Sampson joining me from Opportunity Hub, where he is the CEO. Now, the surge in bond yields, especially today, is not great news for home buyers who might be out shopping this weekend. Let's get the latest from Diana Olick on how the mortgage market is reacting. Diana? Well, Kelly, better economic news in the jobs report, not good for mortgage rates. Take a look at the 30-year fix, rising at the start of this week from a record low and then spiking today, all according to Mortgage News Daily. Now, mortgage rates loosely follow the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which jumped to its highest level since March. So low rates have helped a big spike in demand for mortgages from home buyers, up 18 percent annually last week. That is unlikely to change much with the rate jump simply because there's just so much pent-up demand. But mortgage lenders have been struggling to meet that demand and have gone on a hiring spree. So there's your good news. Big names like Quicken, Loan Depot and United Wholesale Mortgage and Better.com all adding and continuing to add thousands of jobs. I also spoke with J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo, and they said they are also hiring. This could be a new breakout hire for rates, but given the volatility in the economy, it is still possible, Kelly, for rates to turn lower yet again. And most people, Diana, would say, you know, they're still historically low. They might be up, but, you know, they're not, they're not choking you off just yet. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. I mean, they're giving buyers purchasing power still at this level. So true. Diana Olick, thanks so much. With the very latest on the mortgage moves from Washington. Again, a big move higher in interest rates and in markets. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.